Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Randy Hatton. Dr. Hatton is the CEO of Professional Data Health, Inc., former editor-in-chief of APHA Drug Info Line, and graduate of St. Louis College of Pharmacy, so go Eutectics, and a clinical professor at the University of Florida. I won't tell you go Gators, but he can, since I'm from Ohio. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hatton. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Geyer, for inviting me, and go Gators. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't say it because, you know, those rivalries go a little deep around here, even though we did steal your football coach, which didn't work out the best for us. But uh, you, rec- <laughs> you recently published an uh, editorial and research paper around the labeling and analysis of what country pharmaceuticals are made in. And this really struck me because of a few things, but one was a book by Catherine Eban that I read previously, and on top of just curiosity of the pharmacist. Can you give an explanation of kind of like what this research paper showed? Yes, it's my pleasure. I mean, I, I think it's a, a very interesting paper. Uh, I hope some of your listeners will take the time to track it down and read it in more detail. But our research paper is the first to track the country of origin for finished dosage forms and active pharmaceutical ingredients, often referred to as API for brand name, biological, and generic drugs. We do this analysis over a 10-year period looking for important trends and changes as to where these three category of drugs have been made over that period of time. What our research found is that brand name and biological drugs are made primarily in the United States and Western Europe, while generic drugs are increasingly being made outside the United States, with India making more than half of the generic drugs market in the U.S. today, while only roughly a third are still of the generic drugs are still being made in the United States. There's been a steady trend, so these kind of things don't happen rapidly. But if you look at the trend as described in our paper, there's been a steady trend towards greater offshoring of generics used in the United States. Interestingly, more of the biologicals that we use here in the United States have been trending offshore as well, and are, but are being made primarily in Europe rather than the United States. So you might ask yourself, why are we the first to do this analysis? Well, the short answer is these data are not easy to get. The current labeling regulations in the United States for prescription and non-prescription drugs do not require transparency for where these products, the active pharmaceutical ingredient or the finished dosage form are being made. We had, in order to get this data then, we had to cross-reference multiple publicly available databases, including the FDA's drug establishment list, which uh, is a list that the FDA maintains uh, facilities that manufacture, prepare, and compound or process drugs distributed in the U.S., the National Drug Code Directory, and all good pharmacists know that As part of the National Drug Code, there is a part of that code that tells you who the manufacturer is. The Orange Book, the Purple Book, and Daily Med, which lists the complete drug labeling. And for those drugs that have this information, it would would have where that drug is, is being made. Now, if you think of the economics of generics, 
low price. You know, there's a lot of multi-source, low price drugs. It's not surprising that competition drives the cost of these multi-source generics down and that suppliers offshore the manufacturing because costs are lower if you do it in in other like uh, Asian countries and the environmental regulations are more lax. Yeah. And, you know, it is one of those things, too, that it really drove my interest. One, after reading the book by Catherine Eban called Bottle of Lies, which I think I've referenced a few times on the podcast, it is definitely like must read reading if you're a big pharmacy nerd like me or like Dr. Hatton here. And it's always interesting, too, because you start looking at the bottles then and you're realizing that it'll say like made by so and so, but it'll say distributed for, you know, like out of New York or California or whatever. But then it'll say, you know, ingredient or whatever made in. Such, such and such India or such and such China. And you're like, well, wait a minute. So if the green was made there, shipped here, like all those labeling things, is was that like a huge barrier in doing this that you're kind of trying to figure out is like who makes it from where are like multiple coming from one city or one region? Like how was all of that like, how did you even dive into that? Well, I mean, this is the, the multiple database that I talked about. I mean, it, there is no easy way to find this information. In fact, some other researchers took a different approach to finding out information about the origin of pharmaceuticals in the United States. And these were economists that did this. And what they did is they focused only on the facilities, like where the facilities are located. And they even went so far as to use a freedom of information request uh, from and get information to the FDA to help look at, at, at trends looking at it from the perspective of where the, the facilities are. The problem with their analysis was that they didn't link the facilities to the specific drug. So we worked back the opposite way. We started with the drug. And by, by looking at the relationships between the drug facility list, uh, the drug labeling, the NDC code, and you know, if you lay those things over and you use some artificial intelligence, you can then trace back for each drug uh, where the finished dosage form is made. Uh, and in some instances, if they are transparent, you can find out where the active pharmaceutical ingredient is made. Now, I will say that the way we did this, uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients are under current uh, laws and norms are not as easy to find as the finished dosage form. And, you know, you mentioned Catherine Evans' Bottle of Lies. There's also China Rx and some other books along these lines. You know, when I first read those books, uh, I have to say I was skeptical, you know, I mean, because although Catherine Evan is a fantastic writer and she makes uh, it very interesting to read by telling stories uh, about some of the problems particularly, uh, most specifically in hers, generic manufacturers in India, what I was concerned about was that, you know, she was using a, a few instances to paint the entire industry with a broad brush. And from both being interested in patient safety, but also therapeutics, I, you know, I appreciate the huge economic benefit that generic drugs have had on our healthcare system over the last uh, 40 to 50 years. Just to give you one statistic, 
So in about in the 1960s, when they first started tracking some of this information, pharmaceuticals made up about 12% of healthcare expenditures. And if you look at it today, you know, the most recent data, I think the most recent data is around 2019, it's still around 12%. Right. Now, that makes no sense. Right? You're thinking, <laughs> nope. you know, you're thinking, well, drugs are so much more expensive today. You know, we think of drugs that have been approved recently with a cost of over $2 million. And there's drug after drug after drug where we're just, they have these eye popping numbers. Well, how can it be that the relative percentage on healthcare spending is the same with these expensive drugs? And I think it's easy to attribute it to the broad use of generics. You know, we all know the statistic where uh, nine out of 10 drugs, roughly nine out of 10 prescription drugs that are dispensed in the outpatient setting are generics. You know, so if, if you're looking at 90% are relatively inexpensive generics, and we still have about the same percentage of healthcare expenditures, if we didn't have generics, and if we weren't able to use generics, it would be devastating to our healthcare expenditures, and particularly to pharmaceutical expenditures. So rather than just look using the anecdotal experiences, as interesting as they are, and as, and as revelatory as they are, as in bottle of lies, I wanted to start looking at this issue more completely. And that is actually what led me to my research partners who I used to create the data for this study. Yeah, it's pretty funny you say that too, because you know, I, obviously, I can't divulge anything of like contractor or whatever. But when you just generally look at like the pricing of so many of these different drugs, and particularly, I always think of blood pressure meds because they're so common. So many of them, like the purchase price is like under ten bucks, or in many cases, for like per prescription, it's like under three dollars. Like it's crazy low. And so then you're like, well, okay, you know, what are the drugs that are really driving these price changes? And it's your newer brand names, your biologics, insulin's always one that, you know, just because the volume that it pushes drives some of these things up. But it's always it's always interesting when you're looking at the, like you said, the active pharmaceutical ingredients. And I'm just going to use something like amlodipine or lisinopril as an example. It's pretty dirt cheap. And I mean, even if coming from another country and for whatever reason that is. But you also did write an explainer of kind of like an editorial that dug into this research paper. Can you kind of go into what that editorial was and then we'll kind of follow up? Sure, sure. So uh, in, in writing this, we quickly came to appreciate that there were two different perspectives that we need to talk about. One was strictly a research perspective. You know, just present the facts. You know, this is where we are today with where drugs that are being used in the United States are being made. So our research data, our paper focused on the data. The editorial is an advocacy piece. So based on what we found, we wanted to advocate for legal and regulatory changes that would mandate transparent labeling for finished pharmaceutical uh, products, uh, not only listing the country of origin, but the specific manufacturing plant for not only the finished dosage form, but at least for also the active pharmaceutical ingredient so that you know you wouldn't have to do all the gymnastics that we did in order to get these data that for each product on the package and in the official labeling it would say the country where it was made but even more than that it would specifically state what manufacturing plant now why would we want to advocate for that well 
because in order to get at the root of the problem that is revealed in books like Bottle Lies by, by Catherine Van is the only way to improve quality and safety would be to link those specific plants to some kind of a metric. And, you know, we use the term quality scores because that's the thing that's been talked about with the FDA and others as well, to, to link that specific plant with a quality score so that we can decouple the issue of, of, of only relying on the lowest cost. You hear this all the time when you talk about generics, race to the bottom, the lowest possible cost, right? Well, the, the, you lower the cost, you lower the cost, you lower the cost, you start cutting corners, and the next thing you know, you know, quality suffers. So if you could not only look at the cost of that generic drug, uh, and you could look at its quality, then you could pair those two things and get the lowest cost generic drug with good quality. And by making all this information public, you know, the, the, where it's being made, what country it's being made, what, what plant it's being made, and then have a quality score that links to that plant. If uh, plants have very low quality, if the free market works, which is what we are advocating for, then that what would that would help do is that better manufacturers would get more business and the, the poor quality manufacturers would be eventually either have to improve their quality or go out of business. So it is, it is one tool that could be used to try to, you know, protect that generic market that I was saying is so important. Uh, you know, just just like we make benefit and risk assessments for all other aspects of drugs, you know, like whatever its potential side effects, what are its warnings and precautions. But you could look at, if it's a generic drug, you could look at, well, this particular generic is being made at this plant and it has a reputation of being a low quality manufacturer. Then maybe if you are in a position of being able to select from the different products that you're going to use in your practice setting that you would go for a better product and, and avoid those if possible. You know, and I think that the COVID vaccines really brought this out, right? When we started seeing the, the different results and things like that, and then the different data around it, and this might not be an exact point, but you started seeing like, Hey, Pfizer and Moderna were pretty good. You know, Janssen, not so much. And then we started seeing Janssen had some manufacturing issues and people really took a big divergence then towards the other two of the three vaccines available here in the U.S. And part of that is because we started hearing things like the manufacturing process. We started hearing about issues related to it. Well, we all of a sudden became hyper aware. And where I connect that here is people might all of a sudden start realizing exactly what you said. You know, I got this brand and they stayed within the standard deviation or whatever for my, my thyroid medicine. So now the practitioners can go back there and be like, hey, you know, we always kind of say if you're on one generic, stay on it for warfarin, synthroid, that sort of thing. But now we can have a little more data to back that up based on a history. So if we knew if you switched from this one to this one, eh, it should be about the same. Maybe it'll be a little bit different, but it should be ballpark the, the same dose. And there's things like that. And those are two extremely common medications that a very small difference would mean a difference in what dose you're getting. So I think that that's a good call out for that just because I mean, how many people are on thyroid medicine? It's millions. And so that's just one example 
of where something like that could come into play. And I think that the uh, the one thing that I think people, when I read this, I kind of took away was it looks for more like onshoring or nearshoring, whatever term you want to use, some of these plants. And I'm not like a, I, I hate to use this term because it got so politicized, but like America first type of person. But it starts making you wonder is, should we kind of go to that sort of policy? Is that what made you passionate about this and start writing this paper? Or what kind of really made you start taking these sort of advocacy stances? Was there major differences you were seeing or what was it? Uh, Well, I have to say my main motivating factor was to try to help solve a problem. You know, it's certainly not political. It's, you know, that my, although that's the name of your podcast, right? (laughs) My, My perspective is not political. It's, you know, I think one of our jobs is to uh, identify problems and then try to solve them, right? And so, um, like I said, the threat to generics with these with books like Bottles of Lie, I, I see that as a major threat to the pharmaceutical, uh, the whole pra- you know area of pharmaceuticals, and that we have to figure out well what are we going to do about it? You know because you know these were just a few anecdotes that were presented, but at that time, we don't, we didn't, we have no idea of the of the scope of the problem, right? We just, we don't. Is it just a few bad actors that have been uh, summarized in uh, in books and in you know press reports, or a much bigger problem? So, my approach as somebody who's scientifically trained is, well, let's get data. Let's start to generate some data. So this research project that that we published is our the first step we have additional planned studies as well to try to look at these issues because i have to say most people just assume that the fda oversight assures that all drugs are of the same quality and that is just not true i think that even though these might just be a few cases although i can tell you there that that there is data that suggests that there are there are manufacturing plants throughout the world, including the United States, that have very poor quality. Uh, it's just that most people don't appreciate that. So it's not, you know, the plants in India are bad and the plants in the United States are good. That's far from it. It's in general, the a- according to the averages, you know, the plants in the United States might be better uh, and the plants in India might be a little bit worse. But there's good plants in India and there's poor plants in the United States. So it, we need to be more specific. Now, the whole other issue on this is a strategic concern. You know, this comes back to your discussion on COVID. And with COVID, the uh, the strategic supply of pharmaceuticals became uh, just as important as this quality issue is that we have to have access to some very important drugs. Early in the COVID pandemic, that there were some drugs that were used in ICUs that were only made in other countries. And some of those countries uh, were deciding to keep those drugs for their own use rather than, you know, sending into the United States. So this type of approach is something that was summarized in a report out of the White House in 2021. So this was a um, white paper that was put out by by the Biden administration, right after uh, Joe Biden was elected, President Biden was elected, there was a paper that looked at not only, uh, you know, other products that there are strategic interests in, like 
microchips, but in there is a big section on pharmaceuticals. And the, they really studied the issue in looking at you know, onshoring or reshoring. But the conclusion in there is it's impossible to, to do that within a short period of time. And so they brought up this new term called friendshore. Can you explain what friendshoring is a little bit? So the term friendshoring is if we can identify our allies and friends that if we can't bring all drugs back to the United States for production, that we would bring uh, as many as, as, as feasible and we would make sure strategically that we would have allies and friends that could round out the supply of drugs that we need for in times like pandemics or other natural disasters or any kind of a thing that would put a stress on the United States pharmaceutical supply chain. You know, and it's funny you say that too, because even pre-COVID, like let's think of like quote unquote normal days, if we'll ever have that again, hopefully we will soon. (laughs) But when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, I believe it was Baxter who had major issues producing saline, which to me sounds like literally the easiest thing in the world to make. I'm not a drug manufacturing expert, but hospitals had so much of a hard time just stocking normal saline. And because Hurricane Maria wiped out so much in Puerto Rico that they couldn't actually manufacture it. And that caused huge issues all around the country because just think of how many drugs use normal saline. Like it's like probably one of the most common things you see in hospitals. And it, it almost sounds stupid because it's like salt water and it's a pretty primitive version. It just it's sterile. And now major hospitals couldn't get it. People had access. You had to think about what else you had to formulate drugs in, what you had to mix them in, things like that. Is that like another example of why you think that they needed to look at some of these strategies for kind of fringe shoring or re onshoring some of this? Absolutely. In, in that Hurricane Maria, it was also the sterile bags that were yeah. a major problem. And even if you were to bring back uh, most manufacturing to the United States, including, it would include Puerto Rico, of course. You know, a, a big strategic part of this would be redundancy built into the system, right? So if if you only had it in the United States and it was in Puerto Rico and a Maria comes along, well, what are you going to do then, right? So, <laughs> yeah. but if you have a second plant somewhere else, the odds of having two problems uh, that would be um, devastating at the same time uh, would be less. Now, there are some big, big manufacturing plants that make lots of generics here in the United States, in California. So California, it could be earthquakes. It could be fires, right? So natural disasters could, you know, at any time could have a major impact on the supply chain. So it would be ideal to have not only these key products being made in the United States, but we would also have some diversity as to where these products would be made. You know, and this is something, I don't know why, maybe because because I'm a huge pharmacy nerd, but I think of this stuff all the time in context to where I live, right? So Ohio's lost a ton of manufacturing jobs over the decades. That's why we've gotten the title of the Rust Belt between us, you know, Michigan, Detroit, and uh, uh, Pennsylvania. 
And so you see a lot of areas where there's like blight or like abandoned buildings or just areas that aren't doing good. And I believe it was one of the pharmaceutical companies. I don't want to quote which one because I forget that left actually recently near Cleveland a few years back. And it left a huge area where there just wasn't like there was less jobs and people moved out and it was declining and whatever. But because we have open land and we have room that could be repurposed or buildings or what have you, I always think of that generally because Ohio is pretty low on the natural disaster list compared to other areas. Granted, we have tornadoes, but we usually don't have hurricanes (laughs) and things like that. So I think that that's a good call out there. And I mean, honestly, my own bias, it might help my own area if some of those things were done because we are so low risk. But I think it is a good call out of kind of if we have like a secondary go system in place, we can avoid a lot of that. Or, you know, God forbid we have another pandemic. Hopefully in my lifetime, we won't have one like COVID. But, you know, we have that system in place that you can now go, okay, turn the switch on, get it rolling. And then within a reasonable amount of time, we'll have more stuff coming down the pike. And I think that's a huge thing to call out because when you said we have this race to the bottom, the race to the bottom, you don't really need redundancy. Just-in-time shipping, like look at all the issues that's created over there in uh, L.A. with in Long Beach with their ports and things like that. And people literally having to figure out how to reroute ships around continents. And even our port here in Cleveland, Ohio is picked up because all the ports on the East Coast are full. So they're now sending stuff under the Great Lakes again to try and you know offload these things because we had but because we had some redundancy with port systems even though it was smaller ships it wasn't these huge like monster tankers we were able to still work around some things to make it happen logistically even if it costs a little more and is driving some inflation to some extent we're still able to keep going on we still have those options to like live life in a semi-normal fashion and is is that kind of one of the things that you would see as a huge issue if all of a sudden we didn't have redundancy versus if we increased redundancy? Uh, yeah, I think, I, I, I mean, ideally you would have redundancy. Obviously, picking locations that have the least likelihood of natural disasters also has an advantage. I, I agree with what you're saying here. Uh, how to get the U.S. government to uh, incentivize Manu- pharmaceutical manufacturing back in the United States. That is the key question, right? Because this offshoring that's been occurring now for decades, yeah. right? It's been, and it, I mean, it used to be that all, most active pharmaceutical ingredients were made in Western Europe. They were never really made in the United States. They were made in Western Europe. Now, most of them are made in China, right? The active pharmaceutical ingredients. And as we, as you know, our research data showed that the low-cost generic drugs, the thinnest dosage forms, are primarily, you know, increasingly being made in India. Well, the reason they're moving to these lower places is because the economics make sense. You know, they're trying to sell these drugs as inexpensively as possible. So what can the federal government do? Well, the federal government already does the kind of incentives that could be applied to the generic issues with all kinds of drug uh, development and approval. You know, US, the US FDA and the federal government, you know, provides, you know, these push and pull incentives. The push and incentives are those things that help get these things established, right? So that would be an example of that would be tax breaks, you know, additional tax breaks that would provide strong incentives 
to build these manufacturing plants in the United States, right? So, and then I'll give you another example that I, I cited in our editorial is that they're, instead of using batch manufacturing, which is kind of the old technology, there is a newer kind of more modern technology called continuous manufacturing. And recently the FDA published a guidance paper on continuous manufacturing. What continuous manufacturing allows you to do is make the active pharmaceutical ingredient, you know, make make the uh, the other ingredients that are necessary for the finished dosage form, put them all together in one plant and to make smaller batches and do a better job of monitoring quality along the way. Well, they recently, you know, published their final guidance on continuous manufacturing and they are offering uh, incentives to help to help adopt that form of manufacturing. Finally, the other way, the, the pull incentives then would be once you get investment in those manufacturing facilities, maybe modernizing the manufacturing, then you provide financial incentives that guarantee that the drugs that would be made in these plants would be purchased at a reasonable price once they are made. In other words, like for example, guaranteed contracts where those drugs would be purchased for federally funded programs that pay for these products at a price that would be reasonable for being made in the United States with high quality. There are many other type of push incentives, like for example, the US FDA being available to work with the new manufacturer to provide guidance and feedback on how to bring their manufacturing plant up and meet the good manufacturing processes as quickly as possible. I'll give you one other interesting thing to think about. You know, th there is, this all happened during the pandemic, but there was an established, there has been something around for years called the Strategic Pharmaceutical Reserve. Have you ever heard of this? I have, but only like in passing. So, you know, we have the strategic oil reserve where we pump just unbelievable amounts of oil into underground caverns so that if in, in a pinch, in, a, in something like a national emergency, we have this emergency supply of oil. Well, we, are, we have a emergency pharmaceutical reserve that instead of having finished dosage forms, it is the active pharmaceutical ingredients that go into these reserves because you know once you take the active pharmaceutical ingredient mix it with the inert ingredients and then put it in a finished dosage form well now the clock starts ticking and it has a shelf life right i mean mm -hmm. we think of the quote expiration date and we can debate all all day long <laughs> as to how accurate those expiration dates are uh, i think there's pretty good evidence that you know, they're way too short based on, on what the science would show for most drugs. But the active pharmaceutical ingredient can stay stable for a very, very long time. So if you have these drugs that are critical for the function of our healthcare system, and you can then provide U.S. manufacturing plants to create those active pharmaceutical ingredients and then guarantee to buy those that API and then place those products into the strategic pharmaceutical reserve, you're incentivizing 
bringing manufacturing back to the United States and also meeting another strategic need of creating reserves that would come in handy in a time of an emergency. You know, and it's funny you say that too, because I always think of, I worked in a pharmacy that wasn't very far from a nuclear power plant. So we already had to have, what was a potassium iodide in stock because of a case of exposure. And it was one of those things that like, it never moved off our shelf. It always expired. But then like we would get it back in. And it, it made me think of that when you said like the strategic supply, because I swear we were part of that. It was just always made me, you know, that was one of the ways I always kind of was like alerted to it. I didn't know why, I didn't know how, but I know we always had to like keep it in stock. And like the whole time you're just sitting there like, it's going to expire, but I'm told I have to keep it in stock. And I don't know why. Like there had to be some incentive to do that. But obviously it worked because we kept it in stock. Is that kind of another way that you see like things like that could could be done or is it just more of like, hey, let's keep this in some like Fort Knox type vault that the government has control of and then they'll just kind of dole it out as needed type of thing? Yeah, I think it, critical to the strategic pharmaceutical reserve is it's not the finished dosage form that you're talking about. Okay. You know, those, you know, those finished dosage form, they, you know, we do have stockpiles of all kinds of products, you know, like ciprofloxacin for anthrax attacks and things like that. Um, and, but this would be instead of finished, for example, let's say ciprofloxacin tablets, right? Instead of the finished tablet, it would be the powder that could be stored in bulk. And then during a time of emergency, you would have manufacturing plants that could take that drug along with, you know, the, um, the inactive ingredients uh, and then put it into a finished dosage form when it's needed, as opposed to having, you know, stockpiles of just the finished dosage forms, which have expiration dates. And then when they go out of date, then you have to decide what are you going to do about that? I mean, we could have a whole nother discussion about, you know, the, the, the Department of Defense did studies 25 years ago or more that showed uh, many of the drugs that are in those kind of reserves that you're talking about, uh, instead of their label expiration date, which is generally usually around two years or so, uh, they were stable for at least 25 years. Wow. And so, you know, the, the, you know, instead of every two years taking all those expired products and dispose of them, which has environmental issues and expense, uh, and then replacing them with new, uh, that those U.S. De the Department of Defense studies allowed them to keep those drugs for years and years and years. Uh, and it's the, uh, I'm trying to think, it's the Shelf Life Exploration Project or something like that that is funded by the Department of Defense. And so that's been going on for decades. That's really cool. I didn't know that. And I, I remember seeing at one point there were some stockpile of drugs found from like a World War II med kit that I think it was like except for the aspirin like everything else was generally pretty pretty good or pretty stable and it was you know, years later obviously that they found that and that's kind of to your point there about 25 years so i think that's pretty interesting not advocating to sell a drug 23 years past its expiration date because of legal reasons but i think that is a very interesting point you brought up there as well so you know one thing i like to kind of do with people like you who are know way more about this than i do was let's say you have a blank canvas ideal world, you get to design the optimal way that we distribute, monitor our whole drug supply chain. What were some like big changes you would make if you would make any big changes? Well, 
I'm not saying that these changes would be feasible, at least not in the short run, but if you're saying in an ideal world, what would I like to see? Uh, then I would say in an ideal world, there would be sufficient incentive for most drugs, but especially all, any drug that would be deemed critical that they would be made in the United States. And, but key to that is there'd be incentive to do that. You know, not a requirement or not the government doing it, but there would be appropriate incentive to encourage that to, to, to happen. And as I mentioned earlier, that preferably in these things where it would be super uh, critical if there was a problem, a natural disaster, like we talked about a Hurricane Maria or an earthquake or whatever the disaster would be, that there'd be some redundancy built into the system, which could be done using more modern uh, manufacturing techniques like continuous manufacturing, because bulk manufacturing usually are big manufacturing plants, whereas continuous manufacturing can be much smaller. You know, that way we would we would have some redundancy, but there would also be a sufficient incentives for these drugs to maintain high quality, to go back to the issue that, that we were talking about of poor quality, and that this would include public disclosure of manufacturing along with publicly available quality metrics that would assure that we have uh, a, a strategically available, reliable and high quality, quality source of these critical drugs that considering all those things would still be reasonably priced based on competition, right? And so this information would be very transparent and easily traceable. And if we started that today, it would take decades to reach its goal. So, so, you know, if you go back to this White House report I was talking about, uh, you know, you have to have a long-term goal and you work towards it. So you, you work towards it by doing the most important things first and providing incentives to do those and you work at it over time. And, you know, I, I agree with this friend shoring where you have friendly countries or allies who we could partner with in a collaborative way so that, we, between the two of us, we could get reach those goals as quickly as possible. Now, the problem with that is the devil's in the details, right? Because, you know, when I read this uh, White House report, the first thing that I'm thinking about, well, who are our friends and allies, right? right. right. You know, so, so I'm think, so I'm thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to figure this out, and you know, so I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm trying to make a list, and you know, some of them are pretty easy. You know, you think of NATO countries, you know, because we have this relationship with Western European countries already. Uh, I think, okay, well, you know, th those make a lot of sense. But when you think about where drugs are made today, then you get into countries that you go, you know, well, they're definitely not a friend <laughs> and they're not an ally. So, you know, and even if they are a friend or ally, do they meet our standards? So it's, it, it's, it's easy to say, it's certainly, um, it's 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 much more difficult to to carry out. You know, and one step to that too with the transparency part. I think we got everyone got used to this because of COVID. So I think if we started now would be the time. You could easily slap some sort of QR code on all those bottles and have very easy on just the label, even if it wasn't made in the best of places. At least you now would know that, and you can kind of figure it out based upon now you have that infrastructure set up, and then we can kind of build with that going forward. That could be a, a one way to 
initially get that you know foot in the door with this type of thing of transparency. So if somebody wanted to, or say a pharmacist wanted to scan a stock bottle to see if it, was, it needed to be recalled, you'd have it right there. You wouldn't have to go look up the lot, the menu, the uh, expiration date, all the other stuff to go figure it out. And that could be a just a really simple change with the technology we have available that would cost practically nothing since it would just be a modification in the label that could help right. just with this. Right. Yeah, I mean, it could be modeled after the Dr- Drug Supply Chain Security Act of 2013. You know, that 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 law was passed a lot in, re- in uh, response to people worrying about the pedigree of drugs as they move throughout the supply chain. You know, the, right. the problems with, with uh, the gray market wholesalers. And it was stated that, you know, to maintain the integrity of the supply chain. Well... I think your point, you know, and the way we're doing, we're, we're implementing, or we, but the country is implementing the law, is through barcoding. Mm-hmm. You know, and so why is it critical that we can follow a drug through the supply chain after manufacture? Why not start during manufacture or before manufacture? Right. When you're talking about the active pharmaceutical ingredient, where the finished dosage for. Why shouldn't that also be included in those those barcodes so that they can be easily scanned to determine the source for the api and the finished dosage form so yeah the the first step has to be full transparency and you know nothing ever happens quickly this you know think about the (laughs) drug supply chain security act of 2013 it's not even fully implemented yet you know, so it, it'll be a, a few years before it's fully implemented. But so it's taken a, a while to get there. But OK, then, you know, let's start the process and back it up, you know, and add a little bit more information so that we can at least have the structure in place to do some of these other things that we're talking about. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great call. I forgot it was that long ago. I remember hearing about it and being like, oh, yeah, this is coming. And it just kind of fell by the wayside. And that was nine years ago now, roughly, that that, that was put into place. And you're, I think COVID accelerated a lot of those things with just the uh, the QR code, the smartphone technology. Just, I mean, nine years is a lifetime with how much the smartphones have advanced since then. But, you know, hey, you live and you learn, and that's, then pandemics happen and you adjust. So I think that's a, a good call out. I, I do want to kind of wrap this little series here up with you with two questions I ask every guest. And they could be related to this topic or they could not be related to this topic. So if you could change one thing about pharmacy that isn't a law, so like cultural interactions, what you've seen, blah, blah, what would it be? Yeah, that's going to be hard for me because I have a lot of things that would change, you know, having having practiced as a pharmacist now for 45 years this year. <laughs> And and working in a pharmacy for five years before that, so I can say I've been in the pharmacy setting, primarily a hospital pharmacy, although some communities throughout that time, but primarily in the hospital setting, I would I would change a lot of things. Uh, so, but most of my thoughts go towards I would say legal or regulatory things. You know, so you know I I don't know how to change things like culture or things like that uh i would i would like i don't know this probably is a legal thing so you know maybe you'll throw uh 
a flag on this one, but I would like to see pharmacists be be perceived as providing care and not a product. You know, we've talked about this forever. You know, the, the you know, uh, and there have been papers and books written about pharmaceutical care. Uh, you know, I don't I don't necessarily get hung up on the terminology, but providing care and having the ability to provide care and not so much focus only on the product. And, you know, our scope of practice should be expanded because, you know, if you look at the education that we get and the, the skills and expertise, we should be being paid for that expertise and not just it always be linked to a product. And, and I do think there's some movement here, but it's been too slow. And so I guess if I was going to say one thing, you know, something related to this that would not be a law, it would be the activism of pharmacists to get involved in this. I think pharmacists sometimes tend to be a little too uh, complacent and not willing to ask for these kinds of things. So it's maybe not the, the you know, change in scope of practice. That would be law change. But changing the culture of pharmacists uh, demanding that these kind of of rights be given. I mean, I don't know if there'll ever be a better time in my 50 years than now for those things to happen because, you know, we have a uh, plentiful supply of pharmacists and deficiency of many other practitioners. And if we can't figure out a way to parlay those two things into to this opportunity, then then I think we're going to miss the best opportunity that we would ever have. It takes political activism. It takes getting involved. Uh, and so I guess that's the main thing that I would like to see changing. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And I think it's interesting that you say that too, because pharmacists are really good at following. It's kind of what we're trained to do. We're trained to follow guidelines. We're trained to like think inside the box, if you will. And when it comes to approaching new subjects, thinking new ways, or challenging the status quo, like we're not out there like, yeah, you should give four grams of metformin four times a day. Like, no, there's guidelines in place for a reason, and we're the ones who try and keep everyone in those guidelines. Like, that's just our whole mentality and how we're trained. So I, th- I don't know if it's just how we're trained or what, but there is something to that that culturally pharmacists are notoriously not our best activists and we're simply outnumbered by physicians and nurses like i think nurses outnumber us 10 or 11 to 1 so it's pretty crazy when you see that there's only 300,000 pharmacists and like 4 million nurses it's their activism comes a lot easier with their numbers than ours does so i think that's a, a good call out if you could change one law in pharmacy federal state whatever level what would it be and why well since my editorial basically advocated for that. I'm going to take two. I'm going to, I'm going to give you two things. So with with 45 years of be, practice, you can have two. <laughs> I hope I've earned that. So, yeah. So one, the easy one is essentially that what we've already discussed, that laws and regulations should mandate full disclosure of, of manufacturing information for not only the active pharmaceutical ingredient, but the finished dosage form for all prescription and non-prescription drugs and use some kind of technology like we've already talked about the barcoding uh, but also explicitly right on there and that then it would be paired with these quality scores that there are that already exist i mean with the company that i paired with 
in this study, they already know a quality score for every manufacturer in the world of pharmaceuticals that are used in the United States. People aren't accessing that at this point. Um, and you might ask the question, well, how do I even have that? Well, it's, it's a, the interesting story about them is they developed their business model, not with people like us in mind, they actually developed these risk scores, they call them, for each manufacturer for the insurance industry. You know, so when if you're Liberty Mutual and you want to write a policy for a manufacturer about their liability, you need to have some idea what the risk is, right? So all their models were developed with the insurance industry in mind, but uh, they quickly come to, you know, there might be other people and boy, when I was able to, to see what kind of data they had, I thought, you pair this information, this transparency with these scores, then I think the, the hopefully the, the free market will take over. So I'm going to take my uh, my second shot here, <laughs> uh, my mulligan, I guess you'll call it. My interest in all this has been about quality and safety. You know, I mean, I direct a online master's degree in um medication safety and quality systems. You know, that's that's what I've been doing the last few years. And so if I was if if I would like to see one thing, it would be that every prescription and every order for a drug, in order to be a complete prescription or an order, it would require that the indication for use uh, be be linked to just like there's, you know, what the drug is and it's strength and its frequency, it would also state what its indication is for. And why I have always thought that, that should be something that we should mandate is as pharmacists, we need to know this information, right? I mean, drugs can be used for all different kinds of indications. And further, it could help decrease uh, medication errors because, I don't know, we don't do as many handwriting things, but if it's poor handwriting, you're trying to figure out what it is if you had an idea what 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 it was used for that would help or if you know people are now picking drugs off drop down lists you know if a drug got picked and uh, they then have to type in the indication the you know if a wrong drug got picked from a drop down list that might be another way of of making sure you you know there's a good match there and if you're counseling patients how can you counsel patients on a drug if you don't know why they're taking it? You know, I mean, that I think is is critical to uh, improving the overall safety and quality. Yeah. And, you know, I actually really like that, too, for a few reasons, because if you think of just drugs that can be used for multiple indications. So, like, you get a prescription for Topamax. All right. I'm going to take a stab at it. <laughs> Prezosin comes in. Is it for nightmares, blood pressure? What are we using this for? It's very different counseling points or something like naltrexone. Most people are just going to assume, hey, it's some sort of addiction. Well, maybe it's binge eating disorder, off-label. Like, okay, well, some sort of guidance helps me before I walk up and say, hey, are you taking this for addiction? And then the person thinks I totally went and judged them and thrown them under the bus when really I was just betting on what I thought it was in this case. But if I had that you know, diagnosis code or indication, I could go, Hey, you're taking it for this. Maybe that's not appropriate. Maybe it is appropriate. Maybe I found it's off label. We've seen with COVID as a uh, huge hot button issue. So I think that's a, uh, a great one so that we're a little more informed 
And it's a good double check in the health system so that we're not, you know, dispensing stuff willy nilly that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, it, I just don't understand. I've, and I've been told I've been advocating for this for decades, right? And people always say, "Well, you're never going to get that." Well, I, I still want it. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I still think, and I don't see why it's. You know, w- there are elements that make a prescription a prescription. That could be an element, right? Yeah. I'm not accepting this prescription if I don't know why. And we can change. You know, I'm I'm old enough where, you know, the the way prescriptions were written were intentionally meant so that the patient wouldn't know what they're writing, right? You know, so and we you know, at some point we said, Well, that's kind of stupid, you know. So <laughs> let's stop doing that. And and so why can't we why you know, just like if that can change, then this can change as well. Yeah, I look at it as a patient safety thing more than anything else. I'm not trying to quote, get in between a physician and their patient, but it's more like I'm trying to be the good double check and the good steward of their health and of their safety at the same time. So I really like that. Uh, Dr. Haddon, what's a good way for people to reach out or find you on the internet these days so that if they want to find more about stuff like this or what you do? Yeah. So I have no problem with somebody. If they want to reach out to me, they can contact me via my email at the University of Florida. And my email is pretty easy. It's my last name. It tells you how old I am. It's my last name, Hatton, H-A-T-T-O-N, at UFL, from University of Florida, go Gators, dot edu. Uh, and the two other places that are on social media that I'm fairly active is is on LinkedIn. Uh, and I'll be honest, I'm not sure if there's actually like a, an address or something, but that I can be found on LinkedIn. And finally, uh, I do Twitter, and it's uh, at D-R-H-A-T-T-O-N. And excuse me, those are the two easiest ways to get a hold of me. Great. Listeners, he's he's somebody good, uh, insightful to use his wisdom to help improve your knowledge of kind of this fun, nerdy level of pharmacy that, you know, once you go down the rabbit hole, it really becomes very deep, if you will, but I think very interesting at the same time, since it is literally the core of what we do. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Dr. Hatton. It was my pleasure, Dr. Geyer. And um, like I said, I, I look forward to hearing from some of your listeners. Awesome. And listeners, if you can reach out to him, links for his uh, editorial, the research, all of his social media stuff will be in the show notes. You can just click that once the episode's up and running. And otherwise, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.